This is Sound and Vision from KEXP in Seattle. I'm Emily Fox. On this podcast, we'll hear how electronic artist Octo Octa realized she was trans after she read an article about the transition of the lead singer of the band Against Me. I already knew I was a queer individual, and I um, knew that I didn't feel quite right. Um, and reading this, you know, this interview, I was like, oh, that's me. Oh, that's me. That's me. That's me. That's me. <laughs> I didn't realize. <laughs> Jeff Tweedy of Wilco will talk about his band's new album, Ode to Joy. I don't think denying yourself joy gives it to anybody else. Kurt Cobain's biographer will share his idea on what should be done with the former Nirvana frontman's house that's now for sale in Seattle. Whatever we do with that house, where is the place that we start to honor these cultural heroes? Seattle's Paris Alexa will talk about breaking into the national music scene before she even graduated high school. So I wrote this song actually when I was 16. And we'll hear a new perspective on why it's so hard for international bands to tour in the U.S. The deficit of a U.S. tour for us was uh, twice as high (laughs) than the income of a European tour. But first, we continue our series called Day Job. It's where we talk to Seattle-area musicians about how they support themselves in their music careers. Nikki Bodigheimer spends a few nights a week at the White Center Bar called The Lumberyard. On other nights, she fronts the punk band called Pink Parts. For Nikki, pouring drinks isn't just about making a steady paycheck. For better or worse, it's materials she uses in her music. My favorite part about bartending in general is... That's so tough. Whether like I've been doing it too long to like have favorite parts. I th- like, and I don't want to seem so shallow, but f- like my favorite part has got to be the money. My name is Nikki, and I play lots of instruments. I'm in a band called Pink Parts. Uh, I bartend and I teach music lessons. I got into bartending from working as a karaoke host at the Crescent. The Crescent is one of the oldest gay bars in the city and it's karaoke seven nights a week. And the way that I got into that was I was a customer and I just loved to sing so much. I was like just a tiny little baby, like bopping around Capitol Hill. I would go to the Crescent and they were like, holy you've got a really nice voice. You should like work here and do karaoke and I was like okay yeah let's do that I'll do that working at the Crescent as the karaoke host cured my stage fright I got comfortable talking to people in like a public speaking kind of situation and that gave me more confidence as far as being in front of people So one of the best descriptions of Pink Parts that I have ever heard was the Go-Go's on Speed. It's Riot Girl, it's punk, it's pop, it's pretty, it's sad, it's angry, like it's all kinds of things. But generally just very hooky, straightforward rock and roll. 
I tend to write about stuff that like triggers my emotions. So like if something makes me angry, I'll write about it. If something makes me super sad, I'll write about it. The angriest song on the Pink Parts record, one of the angriest songs would be Bandana. And that is about uh, really gross men staring at my boobs while I bartend. I was working at Chop Suey at the time, did lots of club nights there, like meat market, like roofies kind of dance club night and just a bunch of tools in your line that like I would, it's super hot in Chop Suey and we never had air conditioning and the ceiling would sweat and it was so hot and so gross. So like I would wear super skimpy clothes to bartend in because it was the most comfortable for me. And I would just find men ordering drinks from me, like with their eyes zeroed in on my And so I started wearing bandanas to like cover up my cleavage for my tiny tank tops to still feel comfortable so that I wouldn't overheat and die. And then I wrote bandana and it's about like dudes being gross and sexualizing anything, anything, like anything, stop. wearing this bandana because you're staring at my t- mm-hmm. I don't want to be around you just the thought it makes me sick it's a good one I guess there is a part of me that is afraid of being a bartender for the rest of my life not like getting the life that I truly want for myself not being able to like creatively sustain a living I also fear that I'm going to burn out from serving people drinks. I fear that I'm not going to want to stay awake until three o'clock in the morning when I'm 50 years old. And that's how you make all your money is in the party hours. And I fear that it's not sustainable. And then like I flip again and think, oh, you know what though? Like, I'm pretty lucky to have everything that I have and I have a great life and super, super happy. That was Nikki Bodigheimer of the band Pink Parts talking about working as a bartender. It was part of our series called Day Job. It was produced by Bree Ripley, Ryan Sparks, and Hans Anderson. This is Sound and Vision. Electronic producer and DJ Octo Octa released her third album this fall. It's called Resident Body. It's an album inspired by nature and Octo Octa's gender transition. 
She made this album in her cabin in her home state of New Hampshire. Most of the music I do is very emotional and is um, about uh, embodiment and positivity to, to a certain degree. Uh, as much as I like urban environments, they feel, you know, oppressive and stressful. That's Maya Baldry-Morrison, otherwise known as Octo Octa. You can hear her connection to her cabin in a track called My Body is Powerful. In that song, she played over recordings of an owl and loons from the Audubon Society. It's also referential to times I had in New Hampshire because a loon's a, a bird that's there, you know, at, at, uh, uh, at the lakes that's, that's nearby. Um, and as a like haunting, mysterious call that I've heard for a lot of my life. Um, it's something that attaches me there. But most of the album has more of that traditional house sound, a type of music people usually associate with clubs and industrial urban areas. But Baldry Morrison says it's this type of music that she associates with nature. Um, I go into nature and, uh, you know, I can hear you know, synthesizer tones that seem to link up to things like, like wood and plant matter. Baldry Morrison says it's been a spiritual experience to make this music in the woods. But there's also just something about uh, rave music and just the, um, it's so much about euphoria and um, it's about being yourself. And, and, and being there in nature, is, that's, that's how I am. That's how I feel. I'm able to connect with myself and have moments of quiet to reflect on those things. Um, though they're still like dancing bangers. Um, it's kind of an odd di <laughs> dichotomy between them, but uh, uh, getting those moments of rest is really what uh, is, allows that to draw out of me versus um, dealing with typical everyday pressures. And uh, public life is being a queer person. Uh, will definitely bring uh, bring out a lot more um, sadness and frustration out of me versus when I'm at home and relaxed and able to uh, reflect back on you know times times prior. Baldry Morrison first realized she was trans when she read a Rolling Stone article in 2012. It was about the lead singer of the band Against Me, who had just come out as a trans woman. I got to read a piece of media that um, someone talking about their life that so deeply reflected uh, my own and um, experiences and how they were interacting with the world and how she saw things. And um, it, it was it was the first thing I read that I, I already knew I was a queer individual and I um, knew that I didn't feel quite right. Um, and reading this, you know, this interview, I was like, Oh, that's me. Oh, that's me. That's me. That's me. That's me. <laughs> I didn't realize. <laughs> um, it feels quite strange saying that, um, but it, it, it took a, a catalyst of sorts to be like, oh, this feels like it could explain why I felt like this my entire life. <laughs> um, and it took me, uh, I originally wanted to come out in 2013, a year later, and it still took me another, you know, three years after that to finally um, do that. And why did it take, way. you know, those those extra few years? <laughs> I just because <laughs> sometimes it takes a long time. Uh, it worries about family, worries about friends, worries about jobs. Um, you know, uh, uh, there's a there's a, lots of trans people that they come out at their work and it becomes unbearable to stay there and they have to leave and and leaving try to go find other work and that can then be difficult to then um, get another job. Uh, 
Uh, it depends on where you are. I mean, it's 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 a whole host of things. It's a terrifying thing to happen. Um, of course, um, years down the road, I feel wonderful and I feel far better than I ever did before. Um, like I feel like I actually live my life now. But those those steps to get to that moment is is that feel it's it's so far away at that point. It's just it's impossible. It can feel impossible to imagine um, how your life's going to be after this point. Do you feel like, you know, your, your music community has, has embraced you? Yeah, I, it's, it's been a wonderful thing. I mean, a, a big part of it was um, wanting to be involved in um, the queer dance community as queerness is a, a very um, central part to dance music, especially the formation of a lot of um, dance music and clubbing. Um, so in, in, in coming out, I, I got, uh, I shouldn't say I have access to spaces I didn't before. I did, I could go to these parties, um, but I wasn't necessarily playing them. So after I came out, I was um, starting to play a whole bunch of parties that I had always wanted to. <laughs> and uh, there's also been, um, especially in underground dance music, there's been um, a lot of work the past few years to um, making sure everyone's represented in the scene. For a long time, it was just white cis men <laughs> that were the DJs and the popular people and the people that were playing out. And there's been a, a, a big groundswell of people um, attempting to, to change that fact, not to not have, you know, white straight cis men play anymore of course they should be should be allowed to play music people you know music's music's music <laughs> but um to, to to show that there's other people out there that are um able to um do this as well and be respected in that sense of the proceeds of this album, Resonant Body, will go towards the Sylvia Rivera Law Project. It provides legal assistance and aid to those going through a gender transition. Baldry Morrison said she used this service when she was going through her transition while living in New York. One, one thing that I used particularly was they had a lot of resources um, for New York City and doing like name change and gender marker change and all these things um, that uh, I needed access to that I wasn't sure how to go about doing as just free resources that were available. And Baldry Morrison says record sales have been successful so far. We sold out of everything, uh, which has been absolutely wonderful and unexpected. Um, so we're going to be pressing up more vinyl and more people should buy vinyl. <laughs> Again, Octo Octa's latest album is called Resonant Body. Let's go out with a track on that record. This is called Power to the People where Baldry Morrison sampled a chant through a documentary about the history of the AIDS activism movement called United in Anger, A History of ACT UP. This is Sound and Vision. Wilco's latest album called Ode to Joy dropped on Friday. I forgive, but I always forgive which side. 
KEXP's Owen Murphy spoke with frontman Jeff Tweedy about the record. So you and I are about the same age. I'm a month older than you. I just celebrated my 52nd birthday. And um, I was reading about your record and thinking about the music you're making. And it reminded me of, um, it's interesting that in times of political strife, uh, that it it seems like, this is my perception, that great art is often made. So for example... I don't know, I went right back to the Reagan era and like, you know, these amazing compilations of punk rock like Let Em Eat Jelly Beans or, you know, all this amazing hardcore and punk music that was coming out in reaction or even hip hop that was in reaction to, uh, you know, our perception of what the country was going through. What do you think it is about these periods of time, this kind of political strife that maybe creates great art or fuels great art? Well, I don't know if I personally agree with that premise as much. I think that... Uh, I think there's great art being made always, all the time. There are inspired people walking the planet, <laughs> doing doing cool things and putting beautiful things into the world. What I think happens is I think that during periods where there's an overwhelming atmosphere of fear or dread, the cultural value for those things becomes a little bit more enhanced or, you know, the, we weight them a lot more when we need them more. And, um, that's what feels, it's like when you have your heart broken, like when you were in high school and you broke up with your girlfriend and you got in the car and turned the radio on and every song was a, seemed to be exactly what you needed to hear or about you or something. You just disregard all of the, the lyrics that don't matter or don't mean anything. <laughs> so I kind of think the same thing happens when, when we're all collectively you know, enduring something. I was struck by the song Citizens. I think you're singing the words white lies in that. What are you communicating with that song? Is there a double meaning there? Or what's the story? <laughs> I mean, I guess that's the least disguised song on the record in terms of trying to hide my my outward disgust at our political moment. <laughs> you know, but uh, a white lie used to be something that was a, a small lie or, you know, something that's, I guess, meant to protect someone else. And now I think, uh, I mean, it still is that. I guess the way I'm singing it or what I'm hearing in my voice when I sing it is more white lies that are really only to protect a fragile white feeling. (laughs) Uh, And it seemed like we're swimming in those types of lies. The the album's called Ode to Joy. Uh, those are three interesting words. Um, the band Idols came up with, with an album called um, Joy is an Act of Resistance. Uh, joy is a... It, I, I love that you guys are focusing on this word. It, it's easy to be negative. It's, uh, uh, it's hard to be positive. W- why those three words? What's special about them in regard to this album? Well, I don't think denying yourself joy gives it to anybody else. I don't think that that... It's not a zero-sum game where you've you've 
you've conser- conserved it and 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 delivered it to some someone suffering and i think if you if you do that to yourself um if you deny yourself moments of fr- frivolity and <laughs> and laughter and and uh even even your small uh unpleasant emotions you know and weigh them against other people's suffering uh, and deny your own feelings uh, in that regard, you're not really helping anybody. And so I think it's, I think it is something worth acknowledging and uh, working to accept and to avoid uh, dismissing uh, joy and, and, and friendship and our you know our our communities and and things like that because to me that's that's the thing we're we're fighting for uh, we're fighting to preserve that world and preserve and not just preserve it but to to share it and and promote it as as something that everybody should be able to have that was KEXP's Owen Murphy speaking with Jeff Tweedy of Wilco Wilco's latest album, Ode to Joy, was released on Friday. This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. Kurt Cobain in Courtney Love's former Seattle home is for sale for $7.5 million. And that sparked debate in the city on what should be done about the home. Kurt Cobain biographer Charles R. Cross has some ideas. He wrote the book called Heavier Than Heaven, and he joins me now. Hi, Charles. Hey, Emily. Let's first kind of paint a picture of those who might not have seen this house before. So I moved to Seattle about three years ago, and within two months of moving here, twice, people would point out, that's Kurt Cobain's house. It just seems like everyone knows where this house is. It's on that iconic Lake Washington Boulevard, this windy road that's gorgeous, overlooks Lake Washington, beautiful homes, kind of like on this bluff Um, Anything else we should add about like just what the house looks like? Well, the house itself is stunning. It's, you know, essentially four levels. It has a view of the water from the top. Um, I can't remember exactly what year it was built, but it was one of the original houses in that neighborhood. And that is essentially a neighborhood of billionaires. Howard Schultz lives very close. Peter Buck of REM used to live right behind the Cobains, which is part of the reason they actually bought the house, because they felt like it had rock star vibe. Um, the house itself is beautiful. Now, Kurt's connection to the house in Seattle, though, is complicated. Kurt was born in Aberdeen. He actually only lived in Seattle for a very short period at the end of his life. He rented a house in Lake City, of all places, and lived there for about a year. They lived in many hotels and got kicked out of all of them for smoking or drug use or some other kind of problem. And then they bought that house and they moved in in January of 1994. So anyone that does the math, Kurt is deceased by April 5th, 1994. So there's not a long longevity in that home. 
Wow. And so why do so many people associate that home with Kurt Cobain if he only lived there for a few months of his life? As far as I could track, he actually probably spent less than 100 days in the actual house because he also was touring during part of that time. So the home itself was not one that he spent a lot of time at. At the point that Kurt died, most of their possessions were still in boxes in the basement of the house, which adds a particularly grisly idea that he never actually unpacked. But he died there. And the fact that he died there forever links that house in Kurt's history, forever links that house as a special place in Seattle rock history, or frankly, just Seattle cultural history. He didn't die in the house, just to be specific. He died in the greenhouse that was behind the house, and that was ripped down by Courtney a couple years after Kurt died. But the idea that this is the last place he ever was, I mean, I'm a biographer, I met Kurt, um, you know, I, I researched his life. And for me, it still is very, very eerie when I'm there and I'm looking at that backyard and I'm imagining that this is the last place that Kurt Cobain ever took a breath. And it, it, it's, it's an awful memory or an awful thought, but it also is very special. And to me, I think it's sacred ground in a way. And so you, you made a post on Facebook recently about what you think should be done with this property, with this home that's now for sale for $7.5 million. What, what's this idea? Well, I mean, part of the idea is that who wants to live in this house? Now, since Courtney sold the house, two different tech people with lots of money have moved in. And the dirt behind the scenes is that both of them were kind of surprised that so many people still come to the park. And just kind of look at their house all the time. Exactly. Yeah. So who really wants that to be on that idea? Maybe somebody will buy it, but my sense is, is that anybody that buys that house is going to be buying a weird house with a history that doesn't really make sense to me, somebody living there. But that's just me. It's a beautiful piece of architecture, that's for sure. But what I propose, just sort of off the top of my head, is what about the idea of the city of Seattle buying a house, either moving the, the structure or, or taking parts of it away and making the park that is next to it a larger park and making it an official park that honors Kurt Cobain. Right now, we have nothing in the city that honors Kurt Cobain. In fact, just to be clear, there is not one single thing in Seattle other than the Jimi Hendrix Park, which took 42 years of lobbying to get the city of Seattle to name something after Hendrix. Beyond that, there is not one official city memorial in Seattle to any person involved with music. Wow. Um, so we live in a city where in the 70s and 80s, there was this hysteria when the idea of honoring Hendrix was around, that this would encourage kids to do drugs. In the grunge era, yeah, there's stuff at EMP, but EMP is not an official city of Seattle memorial, just to be clear. It's a museum. It's a museum, yeah. and the idea that there's a sculpture of Chris Cornell out there, that is not something that the city of Seattle decided to do. And my concept is that whether we make a park there or not, where is the point where we start to honor these people that were a big part of Seattle's cultural legacy? A larger park and a park that is actually at the place that Kurt lived, to me, seems like a very inexpensive and a very... Um, it, it seems like the right thing to do to me. Um, somebody else moving in that house and living there and raising their kids on that land and having people stare at it all the time, that just somehow seems wrong to me. 
Yeah. But when you posted that online on Facebook, a lot of people said, well, why don't you just turn the house into the mu- into a museum? And a lot of people have thought about the before, about even just his house in Aberdeen where he grew up in. I think for, at one point it was for sale for like a half a million dollars. But if you look at the block he lived in, all the houses were worth like maybe... 35000 Yeah, 35000 at most or something. And I think it eventually sold for less than 200000 um, you know, and, and I think, wasn't there controversy over the Jimi Hendrix house that that was to be moved was. and turned into a museum? That didn't the happen. The city of Seattle didn't save Jimi Hendrix's house. It eventually was demolished. So my point is, whatever we do with that house, whatever we do, where is the place that we start to honor these cultural heroes? And I hate to point this out. I'm not a sports fan, but Edgar Martinez retired from the Seattle Mariners. And within six months, we renamed a street after him. Royal Broom, who was the PI, Seattle Post-Intelligence, or sports editor, we named the street near the stadium after him within months of his death and the stadium being built. There is a place where this city has just not found a place to honor these people. And whether it's this park or a different idea, at some point, I think we have to come around to the acceptance of the ideas that Seattle is music. And that's a big part of who we are. And why can't we do something to officially acknowledge that? Why do you think there's been kind of memorials or or roads named after those associated with sports rather than music? Part of it is that there is this hysteria in America about anyone that ever did drugs. And there is the sense that just because someone had addiction in their history, that somehow their contribution to society is diminished. And I think that's complete crap. And I think the world needs to shift in that way. Um, You know, Jimi Hendrix, who I also wrote about, I mean, is there anybody in Seattle that doesn't think Jimi Hendrix forever is going to be associated with Seattle? And it took so long and so much effort to get that park. I cannot tell you how much lobbying went on behind the scenes. But when it was first proposed, the idea of doing that in the 70s and 80s, literally there were editorials on the television network that if we name something after Jimi Hendrix, we would somehow spoil our children. And Yeah, Kurt Cobain did drugs. No surprise. So did almost every other musician that gets played on KEXP at some point. But that doesn't mean that that art doesn't matter. And it doesn't mean it's not part of Seattle's history. By the way, there are streets named after Doc Maynard, who, you know, sold liquor and a variety of other things. We do have a hypocrisy when it comes to honoring music and cultural leaders. And I think that needs to shift. The time is now. Well, I mean, when I think about when I first saw the news that, you know, Kurt Cobain's house is for sale for $7.5 million, he bought it for $1.5 million, which would have been $2.5 million in today's numbers. So, you know, you, you, you are a rising star in music. You can buy this massive house in this amazing neighborhood in Seattle. And I'm just wondering, like, if, if, if somehow the grunge movement has just started in today's tech era, where, you know, the average home in Seattle costs more than 700000 like... Do you think Kurt would have been able to even be in that neighborhood or, you know, where where would the stars be living right now if there are rising stars in Seattle's music scene right now and nationally? Well, they all live in West Seattle. Everybody who's big in music that's left lives in West Seattle because it still has a community kind of feel. But, you know, Kurt bought that house. A lot of it was Courtney. And I think some of it was Courtney wanting to we've arrived. There is a hilarious story about them buying a Lexus towards the end of Kurt's life. And 
they drove it for three days and neither of them felt like they were comfortable driving a Lexus, so they returned it. But there is this sense in Seattle of musicians that you don't show off your wealth, you don't show off your success. And that's one reason people stay in Seattle, because we don't treat people oddly. You know, we don't treat them weird if they're famous. We don't go up and ask for an autograph. That's the Seattle style. So that's one of the reasons that many rock stars still live here. And we treat them as if they are human beings, not as if they are celebrities. So when I was kind of approaching you to talk about this story this week on Sound and Vision, um, you had said that there's there's like a weird story that you have that'll like give me goosebumps or something like that. Well, I'll tell you a couple things about the house that will make you sad. I okay. mean, you know, on the house, on the wall, were Francis's height marked on the wall. And this is uh, Courtney Loves and, and Kurt Kurt's Cobain's house. daughter. Yeah. So, you know, uh, on the house were, were things painted in the walls, like pictures of Kurt and Courtney in this elaborate scheme in Francis's bedroom. And how old was Francis at the time? Francis was born in 92, so she was okay. less than two when Kurt died. So, I mean, you have a baby, but you essentially, this house was to be the house of their dreams. It was to be a family house. And the idea that it didn't stay that way because of both addiction, Courtney fell into a deep depression after Kurt's death, eventually moved to Los Angeles, um, and Kurt's death itself, it 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 it. it it so, was so weird to be in the house and to go, this is what they imagined they would be. And they were not. But Kurt's death, there is one story that is the eeriest for me that haunts me as a biography. And it, it's, it's in my book. And no one knew where Kurt was. He was missing for a few days. And likely he was in these motels on Shoreline. We know where he bought the shotgun shells. We know where he used to hang out. He wasn't in that house, but he probably was the last day of his life. And there's a report of one of his nannies talked to him a day or so before we think he died. But the last day, what we think was the last day he was alive, one of the nannies went back to the house to look for Kurt. And at that point, they were convinced they were going to find him dead. This was a guy who had tried to commit suicide a number of times. He did have drug issues. He was missing. He had left rehab. Um, these were not good times. So this nanny went back to the house. It was a male nanny with his girlfriend. And they searched the house for Kurt. Every time they opened the door, they didn't find anything, but they expected to find a dead body. They were creeped out by it. They left. They went and got in the car, and they are driving down the driveway. And the girlfriend of the nanny says she looked back at the house as they were driving away and saw a light and a shadow in the greenhouse window. And likely that is the last time anybody ever saw Kurt Cobain. So he was at the house Yes, uh, I mean, yeah. one presumes. Yeah. Um, and she said it was so eerie to see the shadow, and she didn't tell the nanny because she didn't want to get in the middle of drug use or anything else that was going on. And that woman has since died herself um, for issues around the same kind of issues that Kurt had. Um, this is a tragedy that's not about Kurt Cobain in some sense. For my book, I interviewed uh, 325 people. I think 40 of them are dead. 
Some of them are dead from natural causes because that was 18 years ago, but a number of the friends that grew up around Kurt and hung with him, out with him, also died. Some by suicide, many by drug use. This is not about fame. It's not about the guy that wrote Smells Like Teen Spirit. It's essentially about depression and mental health and how we treat that. I mean, I don't want to be on the, the, the soapbox here, but the rate of suicide is almost double this year than it was the year that Kurt Cobain died. So we're talking about a national tragedy. Um, it's not about drugs. It's about mental health, ultimately. And, um, but in any case, that idea that Kurt was there, he saw people, and he didn't reach out, and they didn't ultimately want to find him. You can play that out a thousand ways in your mind, but that vision of what that was like to see a shadowy thing figure in that greenhouse creeps me out. Um, the greenhouse is demolished. There are flowers and rhododendrons where Kurt took his last breath. But to me, that entire space should be a park. There should be a memorial. There should be maybe not a statue, but there should be a giant plaque that said, the man that once lived here did something majestic that Seattle will always be associated and remembered with. And it rocked. And we ought to get to a place in a city where we embrace that part of our culture. So my idea maybe is a crazy idea, but whatever we do, we have to shift the way we talk about these cultural figures and what they contributed to our city. I've been speaking with Charles Cross. He is the author of the book Heavier Than Heaven, a biography of Kurt Cobain. We've been talking about Kurt Cobain's Seattle house that is now for sale for $7.5 million here in Seattle. Charles Cross, thank you so much. Thank you, Emily. This is Sound and Vision. Paris Alexa will be performing live at KEXP on Friday as part of our Street Sounds live show. Paris Alexa is a 21-year-old rising star from Seattle. She already has a publishing deal, writing music for established artists. She's created a national following around her own music, and she made an appearance this fall on the new NBC show Songland. Paris Alexa joins me now to talk about her music and her thoughts on the industry itself. Hi, Paris. Hi, nice to be here. So when did you start writing music? Um, I really started writing music, my mom says, before the songs really made a lot of sense. Um, <laughs> you know, I just always had something to say. Uh, and I think my first song was in the hair shop, was about a homeless man outside. And I just started singing the little song, like, homeless man, homeless man. My mom was like, wow, she's amazing. <laughs> And then I understand once you got to high school, you would like skip class and like write songs in the in the hallway. And then you even skipped school to attend the Grammy Camp Songwriting Program yes. in L.A. Thankfully, my mom vouched for me and it was a summer camp. So I just missed like the end of high school, but um, definitely worth it and, and thankful for her support and just letting me, you know, take that trip. What was what was that experience like being in LA, learning about songwriting? Yeah, well, it took place on the USC campus, and at the time, like one of the top uh, music programs, you know, for songwriters was the USC pop program, and so we kind of got a touch. My songwriting coach, actually, for the camp was the teacher. So, um, you know, as far as college, it was kind of just like a, oh my gosh, we're right kind of in the crux of where we want to be, um, and just meeting all those professionals who really took the time to tell us all 
that this is not just a pipe dream. Like this is just, you know, something that you can actually make into your real career. And this is how to do it. And like telling us tips about the business, that was probably the most lucrative uh, part definitely was, was just like telling me about the business and what I can prepare myself for was definitely like just invaluable. So in September, you appeared on the NBC show called Songland. So it's a show where undiscovered artists pitch their song to like a star recording artist and like, you can have this song. I wrote it for you. And you pitched your song called Pity Party. Let's break down the song. So you 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 pitch the song Pity Party, mm-hmm. and this seems to be like kind of like a popular, kind of like a, I mean, a popular version of like a lot of your songs. Yeah. Um, did you write this song completely by yourself? So I wrote this song actually when I was 16. What? Um, after Grammy camp, right after Grammy camp, I met one of the people that was on the, the final performances panel. Um, and he pulled me aside afterwards and was like, look, you are so talented. You're very prolific and you're young, but I really would like to, for you to stay in LA and like, you know, write for some some major label artists. And so that was kind of the, the real beginning of my career was how I started getting into these crazy rooms. Um, I met like Chance the Rapper, like, you know, and as a 16 year old, I wasn't working with them, but I was there and I got to meet them. Um, And from there, it kind of just like I wrote the song as one of the songs that we were working on. And uh, we shopped it to Ariana Grande. We shopped it to Rihanna. We shopped it to Kiki Palmer. And I think actually I was told that Rihanna had the record first and sent it to Ariana because she was like, this is like a pop smash. And I think that Ariana could kill it. So that's what I heard as a 16-year-old, and that was like as far as the song went. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. So for the song to take on a new life on the show, it was just, like, awesome. Like, it didn't go nowhere, you know, and people really loved it. So it was great to just give it new life, yeah. So I'm speaking with Paris Alexa. She will be performing as part of Street Sounds Live next Friday. And you released your first full-length album called Bloom. It was released last year. How old were you when you wrote this album? That album, I was 18, 17, 18. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Can we talk about the song Cross Pollinating? Yes, or is we it can. Cross Pollinating. Oh, God. <laughs> I was so nervous to put that song out because I was like, the world's going to hear this. Like, <laughs> my parents, my parents are going to hear this. I mean, it first started. Let's just, let's just play a clip. Maybe it takes a good man. Something like a soulmate. So it's like you ready to like have a baby and like you know get into this world. It starts off like you know I'm I'm pooping and whatever right. and, and 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 you're ready. You right. Know? It's all these babies like it's like literally like these babies are you know doing what babies do. You know, when you're in a relationship and when you're serious about a relationship, um, you start to see babies differently than you might before. Before they were just kind of little poop machines. But now it's like, dang, wouldn't that be cool if like I made half of me and half this other person that I like more than everybody else on the earth? And then, bam, like they're their own person. That would be really tight. And, you know, kind of just like a young 
a young lover's dream type of thing. But but putting it in a song made me realize that a lot of people feel this way. You know, adults were like, look, I'm ready to pop one out. And I was like, I can't relate because it's just a song. <laughs> <laughs> but do you feel like you can? Like at the time, did oh, you feel sure. like you were ready? For sure. I mean, man, at the t- I was going to get married. I was really, I'm like a very impulsive person. So I was, <laughs> and now we're friends still. So, um, and that was like a, a long time ago, but. But yeah, I was definitely, you couldn't have told me anything then. I was I was telling Elon, the producer, I was like, yo, I'm about to get married just like you. You know, he's like 10 years older than me. He's like, what are you doing, man? What are you doing? But I, you know, I felt strongly enough to write a song about it. So, And did your parents hear the song and what do they think? My parents did hear the song. I waited until the record actually came out for them to hear the song. And um, I was, of course, worried about my dad hearing it. Um, and my dad, it ended up being like one of his favorite records later on because, you know, he was like, I'm obviously not in real life but the song's cute <laughs> and, and um yeah so that was that was awesome but I was definitely nervous as I am with most of my records whenever I put them out like because my family's closest to me and you know I have a lot of thoughts that I just you don't normally tell your parents all your thoughts and like writing songs and putting them out it's kind of like just airing out your diary been in the music industry I mean you're still young but you still I feel like have learned a lot about the music industry I mean what do you feel like is there things in the music industry that you feel like have surprised you or is there like a big lesson that you've learned in the past few years just being embedded in this right I yes um interesting question I have definitely learned a lot from the industry um especially like starting from a young age I'm really glad that that happened and that also my parents would go to sessions with me because I feel like a lot of the stuff that I'm learning now I was saved from back then when they were able to like shelter me and now that I'm an adult it's kind of things that you have to face on or like the realities of the industry like for example people tell you a lot of things that they don't all the time back up and sometimes it can be huge life-changing things that they can tell you and then they like oh well I said that last week you know and like um, promises right all that's yeah all the time and it's and the other thing is what's interesting is because you know, I was raised off of integrity when, you know, you say something, you're going to do it. That's kind of how people judge you and your character. But in business, you cannot take it personal. It's such a weird thing because I'm like, man, I want to cry or like I want to, you know, like, dang, they said this. But it's like, ah, you just got to kind of take it, to, you know, you just got to take it with a grain of salt and keep it pushing. And um, I would say I have like 80 million backup plans because, you know, you can't really trust people's word all the way. So definitely secure stuff for yourself. I've been speaking with Paris Alexa. She'll be performing as part of the Streets Sound live show at KEXP's Gathering Space Friday. Paris Alexa, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. This is Sound and Vision. A Danish band caught our attention when they posted on social media about the stark difference in cost in touring in the United States versus Europe. The band spoke with KEXP's Owen Murphy while they were back at home in Denmark this week. My name is Mikkel. I'm the singer bass player and guitarist of the Danish band The Foreign Resort. We uh, released our latest album, Outnumbered, on Artifact Records, Canadian label, uh, in April this year. Yesterday, we we came home from our first European tour and we did the numbers. (laughs) And I had to post about it because we both did uh, US tours and this is our first European tour and, and we compared the numbers and uh, what I wrote on Facebook was that the deficit of a US tour for us 
was uh, twice as high <laughs> than the income of a European tour. And I gave an example. I didn't give the exact numbers, but I, I said a US tour would, for example, not pay. Well, put us in the in the in five thousand dollars in the red, whereas a, a European tour would put us two and a half thousand dollars in the plus. And that was something to think about when we would plan our future as a band. <laughs> It's easier to tour Europe because, well, first of all, we don't need work visas as we do for the U.S. We don't need hotels because venues in Europe provide accommodation. We don't. We we get two meals per day because venues provide. A meal in the evening and breakfast the next day, and the general pay for shows, the general show fees over here are just a little larger than the U.S., and so uh, it makes it more profitable, like for us to 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 tour here. For us, at least as a band, going on a U.S. tour is actually well. There's I, there's nothing bad to be said about it because it is actually pretty cool. Like the 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 venues are treat us really nice, and uh, you know it's 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 a cool thing for us to drive through the states. But then the drives are longer, and then again the the the, the pay is a is is a little lower. In general, venues pay us like the fee and then two drink tickets, maybe three or four. A couple of times they provided us with accommodation, like a hotel and and a meal, but that's really rare for a, for a band our size. So every day we have a lot of expenses and not a lot of money coming in. The biggest cost for us as a band is, without doubt, the visa, and especially because the whole situation of work visas the the p1 or the p3 artist visa has changed like it, it's it's always been expensive but now something has happened like uh, the whole process has been made more difficult the bar has been raised so you need to play bigger shows you need to be headlining larger festivals and Also, because uh, the process has been slowed down, like the whole processing uh, of, of the visa uh, application has been slowed down, you need to pay for premium processing, which basically means your application goes from the slow pile to the fast lane pile or whatever. And that alone costs you, that's been raised, that was raised from $1,250 to now $1,440. So uh, the total expenses for us as a European band in visa costs is like $3,500. And then we start buying plane tickets and rent a band and stuff. I feel sad that we can't tour the U.S. because uh, I really like the audience. Like there's a great interaction. Like, uh, you know, we've been touring Canada as well, which we can do without a visa. We just fly in and you need some a little bit of paperwork, but that's it. And the audience is almost as good as the American audience in Canada. And and but the the American audience interacts in this great way that we really like. And we also know a lot of people in the U.S. So I f I feel sad that we can't do it right now at this point because we have a new album and would like to come and play the songs.
The foreign resort will be coming to the U.S. next spring to play promotional shows at South by Southwest. Check them out online at theforeignresort.com. This is Sound and Vision. It's now time for this week's listener question. This week we asked, what's a song that reminds you of fall and why? And a lot of people wrote in and said Autumn Sweater by Yola Tango was their autumn song. So here's a clip. other answers as well. I'm Matthew from Ithaca, New York, and while everybody who is a Yola Tango fan probably is going towards Autumn Sweater, I think Tiny Birds is really the better Autumn song for that, and that's what always comes up for me when I think of music in Autumn. It's about departures and partings, change being reluctantly accepted. Uh, The lyrics, uh, summer stinks and summer stays too long, autumn comes and all of a sudden it's gone. The summer this album came out, it was one of transition for me. I decided to leave college for the second time. I left my friends behind, and while I remained in touch for some time, as years went by, the bonds they continued to forge outlasted my own. I would continue this pattern of fall departures for years to come until I built a new life and community for myself, until fall began to mean something else rather than just an ending. Hi, this is Russell from Bainbridge Island. My fall song is By My Side from the Soul Savers 2009 album, Broken. I think I first heard it on KEXB, actually, but it came out about 10 years ago, and right around the fall, and I permanently associate it with uh, our annual trips out mushroom hunting this time of year. Uh, There's something about it that just captures the experience of a long, slow drive uh, up into the mountains, wandering around in the woods looking for mushrooms, and just the gray fall Pacific Northwest, not quite rain. It's got this Twin Peaks Lynchian sort of vibe that I dig. And every time I hear it, I can just see the forest in the fall. Janine Shirazi, and I'm from Seattle, Washington, originally from New Jersey. When I think of fall and songs, I I think of one song in particular, Pictures of You, and in fact, the entire album, Disintegration, just feels like sort of a fall embrace. It's very melancholy like the season. It reminds me of a particular fall, though, in 1990. 
I was living in New Jersey in the projects. I was very much um, in need of a new life. And so my aunt and uncle rescued me for a better life and moved me to Littleton, Colorado, which better life was pretty subjective at that point. I was a tortured teenager and I looked and talked very differently than any of these people in Littleton, Colorado. And I had known nothing of suburbia other than uh, the movie Heathers, which great movie, but the reality of living there, not so much. So anyway, I was very tortured and very melancholy and missing my friends. And I was having such a hard time and it was the fall. And till this day, I could just listen to The Cure Disintegration, hold its album and just be transported back there. But the song in particular, Pictures of You, uh, reminds me of laying in my bed, staring out the window at the changing aspen leaves and looking at all the pictures of my friends that I posted on my wall, missing them longingly. Again, tortured teen, the the mood, it just all worked out. And so that song always, always reminds me of that. And somehow it always also let me know that everything was going to be okay, which it was. Thanks to everyone for sharing their story, and thanks to you for listening. A special thanks to Jamie and Mike for writing a review for the Sound and Vision podcast on Apple Podcasts last week. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing this podcast helps other people know it exists. It makes a huge difference if you just take a minute now and subscribe rate and review. I would really appreciate it. And KEXP would really appreciate it if you took the next step and gave a one-time $20 donation at kexp.org slash sound. Also, a special thanks to our contributors for this show, Hans Anderson and Owen Murphy. I'm your host and executive producer, Emily Fox. Our intro theme music is by The True Loves. And to wrap up the show this week, we ask, why does music matter? This week, we hear from Paris Alexa. Um, This might be a little bit deep, but my mom shared a book with me recently about a man who passed away and how he, I guess, came back from the dead after he was pronounced dead for a couple seconds. Um, And he was telling about how, you know, time obviously seemed longer there. And he heard beautiful like the most beautiful music he's ever heard and like you know he's explaining this soul-altering experience but but the part that I held on to was that he heard music and I'm like wow that makes so much sense that music really transcends life because it really does feel that way you know music can describe feeling it can it can capture a moment in time Um, it can be so personal and it can be so shared like with people who don't even speak the same language as you I think that the fact that after I heard that that he said that, you know, it transcended life. It just makes sense. I think that it, 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 um, it's the glue. It really holds us together in a way that nothing else can. And yeah, I'm happy that, you know, after this is all over, I'll still be able to hear music. That was Sound and Vision. Let's touch base again next week.